it is because Jesus loves us that he enters into the pain with us. That's right. That there's something beautiful and meaningful and redemptive even in the pain. Yeah. And so for those emotions, whatever they are, and especially those that we might perceive as hurtful or destructive, or maybe we have labeled them as negative, to understand that all the emotions that we've been given are an aspect of God's creation, and there's a goodness and there's a beauty in them. So it's not about avoiding them, it's about stewarding them. And that's kind of the invitation, is in order to be fully alive, I must be fully present in my emotions. And part of the abundant life is living that emotional life, all of the emotions, whatever it is that they may mean. Mm -hmm. And in that, very much like what you said, let them be a revelation about me and let them also be a revelation about God. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Faithful and True podcast. For those of you that are regular viewers, you'll see that we are missing a significant member of our team. Randy isn't with us today. He has the opportunity to be traveling with his wife, and we're very glad that he has that chance. And so it's just going to be Jim and I. Um, Jim is our clinical director and a CSAD and a significant voice here at Faithful and True. And so we're very glad that you are here with us. Yeah, excited to be here, Greg. Well, good. Well, today um, we're going to be doing a topic that has been suggested by one of our team members, and it's understanding more about um, emotions. And one of the things here, if you're a part of the Faithful and True podcast, if you've been listening for a while or if you've come through our workshop, we often talk about what it means to be emotionally present, to be emotionally free, and even to seek out what it is to be emotionally healthy. And what we also know, though, is in the early days of discovering that, um, that can be very challenging to find out how to be emotionally present without being overwhelming or overpowering in your emotions. And what can also be true is for a lot of our participants, part of the chaos around emotions is how they experience them growing up. And so what we're going to be talking about today is what is the, the difference between being emotionally present and being emotionally reactive or even being emotionally abusive. And so Jim is here today to carry on the conversation. So even as we set it up, Jim, what are your initial thoughts about those differences? Yeah, yeah. I think one of them, one of the things I often talk about a lot is if we grew up kind of in unstable environments, sometimes we'll see emotions especially kind of what we describe as difficult emotions like the, or some people call them negative emotions, mm -hmm. anger, sadness, sadness, loneliness, things like that. We'll see those, you know, those types of emotions as problems to be fixed. Right. You know, and quite frankly, for a lot of people, they actually were, you know, because maybe growing up, you know, if your dad got angry, that meant I was going to get hit. Right. So it was a problem to be fixed. Yeah. Or if mom was sad, that meant she'd go on a bender drinking and I wouldn't see her for two days. So some people actually, it was a problem to have those types of emotions in their family systems. Yeah, I've worked with a lot of guys and maybe the language that they would use is that emotions are dangerous. And so if somebody is being emotional, there's some sort of danger, either obvious or lurking. Um, and another thing is that emotions are threatening. And kind of like what you've alluded to, um, someone with grand or, or large emotions could actually be a threat to safety, a threat to stability, um, a threat to consistency. And so we have this conscious and unconscious belief that no emotions are safer than emotions. 
And so if anybody has any type of emotional reaction now, it may be legitimate, it may be proportional, and yet it be, feels threatening to us. Yeah, and also I think the other part of that is, you know, as kids, when there's that type of strong emotions, there's a sense of helplessness around that. Like, what do you do with this? Right. It's so complex, you know, from a child's perspective, you, you really feel not only powerless about what's happening around you, but helpless to do anything about it. Yeah, and sometimes when emotions are big, kind of the image that I use is it fills all the space in the house and then there's not room for anything else or anyone else's emotions. And so maybe you grew up in a home where someone was struggling with significant depression or as you've already alluded to, significant anger. And that emotion was so big that as a child, one of the ways that you discovered that you could survive was getting very small in your emotions. It becomes even more complicated when um, you are punished for your emotions or your emotions are dismissed. So one of the things that we simply want to acknowledge is that we come to this topic with some story and how they were handled growing up um, significantly impacts how we experience them now, how we perceive them now, and even how we respond when somebody else has emotions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've talked a lot already so far in terms of those emotions that are that are out there that we can see. But, you know, emotions that aren't talked about or expressed in the open awful also can be kind of then interpreted as those aren't good things. Right. Maybe, you know, I noticed that you know, no one was allowed to be angry in the house. So everybody just kind of went to their own rooms and, and, you know, when things seemed to blow over, then we came back together. Right. And so when I would say that that's very similar to my experience, I have very few member uh, memories of there being anger expressed directly. And so there, therefore, when I got married and entered into a relationship, um, Beth's anger, or even what might be stirring up in me as anger was so unknown and, um, unrecognized at times, not understood, that it was so unfamiliar that it just shut me down. I'm just, the fact that I didn't understand it was what was threatening about it. And so I created this pattern of, well, this is the way that we did it growing up. If you're angry, you just stuff it and you hold it to the best of your ability. And many times that's what we do. We just create and repeat the patterns of the past. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, Debbie, you know, I'm, I, I feel comfortable sharing this because we've talked about it before. We're, we're both twins. Mm. And we both have this story of like when emotions were high in our, how, in our homes, we would go hide under our beds. Right. <laughs> you know, it was a safe place to get away from all that strong emotion. Absolutely. You know, one, one of the things that I also see is that in some homes, only certain emotions are allowed. And so if you're, I hear this all the time, you know, if you're happy, happiness was allowed. If you're joyful, joy, joy was allowed. And if you're grateful, grateful is allowed. And so it's almost as if there was this pattern of certain emotions were acceptable. And so you might have been exposed to this belief that these are the only ones that exist, or these are the only ones that we can have in a happy home. And we have these messages about what a good family is and what a not good family is. And sometimes the good family is the one that's always happy and there's peaceful and joyful. And, you know, we can begin to believe that something outside of that framework is not good. And if we grew up in a Christian home, we might even see it as sin. So to be angry was sinful, and we all know we're not supposed to be sinful. And maybe even the scripture was, you know, chosen or there was a a misinterpretation, an over-focus on certain scriptures. And so we didn't realize, oh, actually, my anger is legitimate. My anger is valid, and it's something that I can bring into my relationship 
in a redemptive way. You know, it's that the passage is be angry, just don't sin in your anger. So the be angry part was the part that was left out, but it's an invitation to be fully present in our emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think another thing oftentimes too is, you know, um, we, we may have heard statements like, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Right. You know, like somehow we, we can just automatically change how we feel. Like, oh, maybe I should be happy then. And so then I have to go into this other kind of point, part of me and, and you know, kind of avoid or deny an actual reality that's going on for me. Right. Well, and it, it can be very confusing for a child where, let's say there's been a loss in the family. Somebody has died. And in that particular family system, grief is not allowed. And so all they're doing is focusing on the good times. They're telling the good stories. They're um, remembering all that was good and amazing. But the reality is the child is also experiencing grief over the loss. And in the way that this is being presented, it's almost as if they begin to question their perception of reality. It seems like there's a loss because grandpa died. It seems like this should be sad. And yet everybody around me is just talking about the good times and there's not space for this grief. And so there's almost this questioning, am I interpreting reality appropriately or correctly? And so it can be that thing where children are actually confused because intuitively we will respond well emotionally if given the opportunity. So if that's challenged or dismissed, it can be very disruptive for the child. Yeah, yeah. I always kind of tell the story that, you know, my grandfather died and my my middle son and my nephew are the, basically the same age. I think they were probably three at the time. And we took him to the funeral. And that was an open casket. And we kind of lost track of him. And they're poking at my grandpa's face <laughs> and giggling. You know, and I think it was maybe my mom or some other, you know, person was kind of, you know, kind of discipline them. I was like, they don't know how to deal with this. Right. You know, that's great grandpa. You know, right. trying to make sense of, of what's happening here. And they're approaching it from that three-year-old perspective of curiosity and uncertainty. And it makes sense that they're not fully grasping the reality of what's going on. Yeah. And so, you know, we also have a family story of a, a funeral um, and then the graveside. And then one of our boys was running around kind of skipping through all of the graves, announcing that all these people were dead. And we often tell that story of children just experience things however they experience them. And as parents, sometimes if it's not what we expect or maybe others are going to judge, we may want to diminish our child's emotion or try to contain it instead of creating the freedom for them just to be in the moment to the extent that they can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things, you know, maybe for us to talk about, you know, Greg, is, you know, you know what what you know what is god's purpose for emotions for mm-hmm. feelings you know and you know what do we do with them you know what what how can we you know kind of experience them or understand them and one of the things i often talk about is is feelings are oftentimes an indicator to something that we need right or when we experience it in someone else you know to see their emotions as they're needing something rather than I have to fix this for them. Right. You know, because I think our, 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 for a lot of people, when we see emotion in our spouse, it's like, I got to fix that. I got to make them somehow feel better. Right. You know, rather than seeing, you know, that, that feeling is telling me they, they need something. Or if I'm experiencing that emotion, that, that feeling is indicating I'm needing something right, right. now. Well, I, mean, I think what's true is for those 
people who are present with their emotions, that they, there's a freedom with that. They simply flow. What can be true is the first way they show up in a situation is with the emotion. Mm-hmm. Even before they're able to take in the experience or the environment or any other aspect of what's going on. It's, you know, the parent who sees the child running towards them. And before they really can understand what is going on, they're experiencing joy. Um, and so sometimes the emotions are what lead us into a circumstance. And very much like you're saying is if we can listen to them, they're telling us something about a circumstance. They're telling us something about our need, what's going on. And as you've identified, if the emotion is coming from somebody else, it's also expressing a need or a desire or how they're showing up in an experience. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, though, is a lot of us, unfortunately, didn't grow up with families that or parents that had this understanding themselves because they didn't receive it. So they didn't really understand emotions. Right. Let alone what they're feeling or what those feelings might be telling them what they're needing. Right. I, I can share an example. Recently, I was, I was coming out of Target. You know, and right in the, uh, you know, the, the doors that open and shut, there's a probably a four-year-old little girl, and she's kind of just having a tantrum. And mom's right there in the, the door, and I, I can't really get around, so I'm standing there for a little bit. And then they, she kind of moved the little girl to the side. But as I was walking by, I hear the mom say to the little girl, it seems like you're really frustrated. Is it because? And then I didn't hear the rest. But, I mean, think about that. Mm-hmm. This mom gave this this little four-year-old girl the language to what she was experiencing. Right. You know? And also validating, you know, it makes sense you're disappointed because maybe you wanted something that we were seeing as we were checking out or maybe your expectation was that we were coming to Target to get a toy or something that you want. And so it makes sense that you're frustrated or angry or disappointed when your expectation isn't met. And to be able to model that for our children and allow them to begin to have some of that language begins to change the dynamic. Suddenly, um, emotions aren't threatening. They're actually a a revelation of what is going on for somebody else. And what's true is I often talk about at the men's workshop is the, the, the nature of childhood is early on we are emotionally free. You know, that that we don't think about emotion. Something just gets triggered or activated and we just experience them. And so when our children are really young, we may not know what it is about because they may not be verbal. They may not be able to express it. But their emotions is is a clear communication to something that is going on. And so to be able to interpret that, to listen to it, I think can really change the dynamic of those experiences. And if we make it about us, you know, very easy in parenting, our child is having a meltdown, we start to get embarrassed. We Mm -hmm. start to feel uncomfortable. Um, We are afraid we're going to be judged as bad parents whose kids are out of control versus if we can just take that breath and be with our children in that experience, then we can navigate it with them and for them in a very different way. Yeah. That's what was so moving about that example, because here's the mother right in the middle of the doorway of Target where people are coming in and out. And she's having this conversation as people mm-hmm. are waiting to try to get by them. Right. But she's recognizing the importance of it and working with this little girl at that, at that moment is pretty powerful. Absolutely. In most of our experience, and I can even say that as a dad when my kids were young, instead of wanting to hear what the emotion is trying to tell me, I wanted to shut it down. 
because I was in a hurry or there was someplace else that I needed to be or I was frustrated or overwhelmed by my day and I didn't have the patience or the capacity to be with my son in that moment. And so it's important for us to recognize my emotional reaction to somebody else's emotions are about me and my story. Mm-hmm. You know, we get activated when somebody else is activated. And we see this a lot in the coupleship. Somebody gets triggered in the, the coupleship, and suddenly I'm reacting to their emotion. And if we're not careful as a couple, we're off to the races, just bouncing off of each other in some dysregulation because we're triggered by each other's emotions. Yeah. But if I can slow that whole process down and know that I can hear my spouse and whatever it is that they're feeling, and in time, maybe I will be able to be heard in my emotion and create that safe exchange of curiosity versus fear, judgment, and overreactions. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of a story I worked with a couple. I mean, this is years ago, probably early 2000s. And the couple was really distraught because what they presented with was um, the way they shared it was the wife said, every, you know, every time she became sad, her husband would get extremely angry. And he didn't really understand it because it didn't seem to be congruent with right. what she was experiencing. Why would he get angry at her because she's sad? Well, as we got deeper into their story, one of the things that he had shared was that, you know, when he was 11 or 12, he was the oldest sibling. And dad, you know, mom and dad split up. And so mom kind of, you know, put a lot of her emotional needs on this on this guy when mm-hmm. he was 11, 12, which he had no capacity whatsoever to deal with her grief and sadness of right. the divorce. And so it left him extremely angry. And he felt like a failure. Like right. he couldn't meet his mother's needs. Well, so he anticipated i think at a subconscious level that he was going to fail his wife so his anger is really is being directed as his wife but i think he was anticipating his own failure to meet her needs absolutely and a a similar example would be um even in my home there could be a lot of depression and as a little boy i began to believe it was my responsibility to keep people happy and when they weren't and somebody was depressed instead of anger what i felt was fear And the fear was about, very similar, that there was going to be an expectation placed upon me and I wasn't going to be able to meet that expectation. So here's an example where one person is feeling sadness, but given our story, one person shows up with anger, another person shows up with fear. And I think that that's part of that power of understanding what's stirring in me. And for the people in our listening audience that are familiar with the Um, iceberg model, the Virginia Satir model that we talk about so much here at Faithful and True and is in Mark and Deb's book, The Seven Desires. At the top of the iceberg or the, the higher level of the iceberg are feelings. And then there's feelings about feelings. And what's interesting is the meaning, messages, perception level is underneath that. And those come from our emotions. So my perceptions are triggered by what it is that I'm feeling and how I'm experiencing it. And that's why it is important for us to dig a little bit deeper to figure out why am I responding the way that I am? You know, part of what we want to talk about is what does it look like in this process of being emotionally present when it does start to become unhealthy or destructive in a relationship? And part of that is emotional reactions that are not explored and understood. Mm-hmm. You know, we often talk about this idea, if you're having a $100 reaction to a $10 issue, it is your responsible, uh, responsibility to get in there and figure out what are those other $90 are about. 
And so if I'm just having these big emotions, <clears throat> but I'm not looking deeper into my story to figure out what is going on, eventually that unexplored reaction is going to be destructive in the relationship because I'm just going to keep recycling it over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It, it is really important to understand you know, that those strong reactions are rooted in earlier pain, earlier associations. Right. And so um, without doing that work, we'll just continue to react over and over again you know, out of those automatic reactions. Right. And I also think another unhealthy dynamic can exist is that idea that somebody is, and you've kind of alluded to this, somebody is feeling something, and then instead of just having the capacity to be with them in that emotion, my reaction is I've got to fix it or I've got to rescue them from it. And I think working with couples, we hear this a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable with what my spouse is feeling. I'm getting triggered by that. And so now I'm in some sort of activated mode to try to fix it, change it, um, dismiss it, or distract them from it. And so part of emotional health is when there is a proportional response and we have the capacity to be with somebody in that. We can just be with them in their sadness or their anger or their hurt and not necessarily be responsible for changing it. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes when, when we take ownership, because basically what that means is we're taking ownership of their feeling. Right. It, it invalidates their experience. It almost gives them the message that it's not okay for you to feel that way. And so I'm going to remove that feeling from you, at least attempt to do that. We've already talked about you can't do that. But, right. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the belief is, oh, I'm doing this because I love you and I don't want you to feel sad. So I'm going to try to do something to remove your sadness. But the reality is it's not about you and your sadness. It's about me and my uncomfortableness with your sadness. And so I'm actually wanting to change your position or your perspective so that I can be safe. Yeah. And a lot of times, um, you know, when, in working with couples, there can be a pattern where someone in the coupleship is always trying to make it better, re rescue, fix. And there's a part of that that just doesn't feel safe. And I think it's because intuitively we know that the other person it really isn't focusing on us and what we're feeling. They're wanting to change the experience so that they can feel safer in what's going on for them. Yeah, yeah. Can I change it just to some? Oh, absolutely. Some, some theology around this, just absolutely. a little bit. Absolutely. So I always kind of describe this when it when it comes to grief, but I'll I, I think we can put any kind of emotion into this story. But I often talk about you know the, the story of you know Mary and Martha and you know their their brother Lazarus and Jesus members preaching in a, in a different part of of the country there, and Mary and Martha send for Jesus and say, Hey, our brother's dying here. You know, hurry up and 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 I envision like come here and heal him. Right. And I always hated this passage because I always thought, man, why is Jesus just taking his time? Like you almost wanted to kind of just give him a swift kick right. in the butt, like get moving. <laughs> the guy's dying over there, you know, but he seems to take his time. And then of course we know the story, you know, Lazarus dies when Jesus is on his way there. And Mary and Martha, I always kind of vision a sarcastic, well, thanks for showing up, buddy, but he's dying. Right, you exactly. Know? <laughs> you know, but he, if he's God, I always envision, why doesn't he just heal him? Avoid everybody's pain and just get done with it. But it even, the, the story even goes that, you know, he, he gets there and he still doesn't heal him right away. The, the Bible says he actually weeps with Mary and Martha. And I'm sitting there going, why would he do that? Why would he enter into his own pain and allow Mary and Martha to still experience pain and just not heal Lazarus and avoid everybody's pain? But he doesn't do that. So there must be an important mm -hmm. aspect from Jesus's perspective that we need to feel this. Right. Well, and part of it is the imagery in that is 
not only are the mourners and the family and the people there, is their grief significant and valid? And so Jesus enters into that and kind of the message that we share at the workshop is Jesus isn't there to rescue us from our pain. He could, that certainly was within his capacity. And there were times that we saw interventions in significant ways that helped to avoid pain. But in this particular case, it's very intentional that he did not do that. And what he did instead, instead of rescuing the family from their pain and the community from their pain, he was present with them in the pain. Yeah. You know, um, there's this, this idea that if Jesus really loves me, he's always going to rescue me from my pain. And one of the messages of this lesson is it is because Jesus loves us that he enters into the pain with us. That's right. That there's something beautiful and meaningful and redemptive even in the pain. Yeah. And so for those emotions, whatever they are, and especially those that we might perceive as hurtful or destructive, or maybe we have labeled them as negative, to understand that all the emotions that we've been given are an aspect of God's creation, and there's a goodness and there's a beauty in them. So it's not about avoiding them, it's about stewarding them. And that's kind of the invitation is in order to be fully alive, I must be fully present in my emotions. And part of the abundant life is living that emotional life, all of the emotions, whatever it is that they may mean. Mm -hmm. And in that, very much like what you said, let them be a revelation about me and let them also be a revelation about God. Yeah. Well, there's a level of intimacy that's built when we allow someone into our emotional mm -hmm. experience that won't happen. If we didn't allow that to, you know, to to invite others into that, I always tell the story: follow Mary and Martha, you know, go to Golgotha where Jesus is hanging on the cross. Mm -hmm. All of his eleven closest buddies that are left outside of Judas are like in the background hiding. Who's at his feet? Right, Mary and Martha. Absolutely, they, they they're willing to enter into his most momentous time of pain because he was willing to do that for them. Absolutely. You know? Well, and with that, we'll end. But thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for being a part of our conversation, and for those of you that are regular viewers of um, the Faithful and True podcast, we're very thankful for your participation. And if you're new to what it is that we're doing, we encourage you to go to faithfulandtrue.com and check out the website. We do workshops here for men who struggle with sexual addiction. We also work with wives and have a workshop for them. And we also work with couples and have a workshop for couples. And all that information is on our web. And so go and visit the site and see if there's a way that we can support you in your journey as each of us seek to become the men and the women that God created us to be.